Father God, it is your son that taught us to pray. Your will be done. So, Father, we pray this morning that your will be done in our hearts as we hear your word. Your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Father, may you quicken our hearts. May you stir our affections for you. Help us to receive what you have to say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to share something so that you know my heart. Uh, this, and to give context to what I'm about to say, it's important to know that this is only the sixth time that I've preached at Remedy. But I have never cried so much in preparing for a sermon as I have this one today. To be faithful to the text, I need to say some hard things this morning. All of Scripture is profitable, but Colossians hits the sweet spot for remedy. The reason is because the trouble at Colossae is the same thing that we face today, and that's syncretism. Syncretism is the blending, the mixing of different religions and philosophies with Christianity. In our society, people want to pick and choose from this religion and that philosophy. In fact, I've even heard people say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth, as if there's any truth but God's truth. In talking about our culture, Mark Dever writes in his book, The Church, Evangelism is characterized as intolerant, and portions of biblical doctrine are classified as hate speech. In such antagonistic times, conforming to the culture will mean the loss of the gospel itself. In an article on critical, consider the question of our fundamental problem as humans. Is our fundamental problem sin, in which case we're all all equally stand condemned before a holy God? Or is our fundamental problem oppression, in which case members of dominant groups are tainted by guilt in a way that members of subordinate groups are not? Is our identity primarily defined in terms of our vertical relationship to God or primarily in terms of horizontal power dynamics between groups of people? Even among Christians, it's not unusual to mix ideas from our culture with Christianity, for us to interpret the truth of Scripture by our culture instead of looking at our culture through the lens of Scripture. Syncretism from our culture creeps into our views about sex outside of marriage. It infiltrates our minds in terms of what we think passes for entertainment in our homes. It impacts our ideas about success and wealth. Syncretism shows up in our worldviews on race, the concept of truth itself. How we need Colossians. To our synchronistic culture, Colossians presents the truth claims of Christianity. Consider the truth claims of the Christ hymn that we just recited all together. Christ is God. He is Lord. He is above all angelic authorities. He's creator. 
All things were created for him. He sustains all things. There is but one true church, and Christ is the head. He is fully God, he is fully man, and as such can redeem us, making peace with God the Father as the unique mediator between God and man. The church at Colossae was started by Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras most likely came to Christ under Paul's ministry. And then he went to his home church, or his hometown of Colossae, started a church there. And uh, when a heresy began to be propagated, he went to Paul for help. The heretics were mixing Christianity with their culture. They were saying that Christ is not God, that Christ is not sufficient for salvation. In addition to Christ, you have to have certain religious activity. You have to have visions. You have to worship other spirits, such as angels. This particular heresy had some things in common with Gnosticism. Gnostics say that matter is evil and that emancipation comes through gnosis, which is esoteric knowledge. Esoteric just means that only the initiated can understand it. They claimed that God didn't create the material world, right, because material is evil. Instead, there are lesser spirits that emanated from God, and one of these created the material world. The heresy at Colossae was similar to Gnosticism that I just described, in that it said you had to worship angels to get to God, that Christ wasn't enough because Christ wasn't God. The false teachers at Colossae were mixing Christianity with their culture, with the worldview of those around them. Like many false teachers today, they claimed that they were enlightened, that they had insight into the spiritual realm. They claimed that you needed more than Christ. So Paul restates the very basics of Christianity at the beginning of the book, and then he tackles the synchronistic heresies that refute that truth. We don't know the exact details of the heresy, but we get the gist of it in how Paul refutes it. It contained three elements. Number one, legalism. Seeking righteousness in dietary restrictions and observing the Jewish calendar. Number two, mysticism. Seeking righteousness in certain religious experiences. And number three, asceticism trying to gain righteousness through self-denial. Paul says not to be intimidated by legalists in verses 16 and 17, to not be disqualified by mystics in verse 18, and not to submit to ascetics in verses 20 to 23. Instead, we should be holding fast to Christ and growing with divine growth, verse 19. We'll see how Paul deals with the legalism and mysticism today, and then after Christmas in part two, how he deals with asceticism. Our passage today starts with the word, therefore. So looking back, we saw two weeks ago, Paul begins to set up his argument in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Then last week we saw how Paul clearly fixes the gospel in the minds of the Colossians 
before refuting the heresy itself, starting in verse 16 in our passage today. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So point one, you can bring it up. Avoid the danger of syncretism. Don't be intimidated by legalists. The New Testament doesn't use the word legalism, so I need to define that for you so that you can see that's what Paul is dealing with, even though he doesn't use the word here. Legalism is thinking that we are accepted by God because we keep the rules. It's the terrible mistake of pursuing good works in order to earn God's favor. We must guard against legalism every day. I know. I'm a recovering legalist myself. I grew up attending Southern Baptist churches that were pretty good about teaching salvation. But sanctification and discipleship, not so much. I would not have articulated it this way, but I acted as if salvation was by grace through faith, but sanctification was by keeping the law. Then when I was in grad school, I started attending um, a more reformed church, and I met a young man four years older than myself named Roger Hill. Roger and I soon became good friends. In fact, Susan, Roger, and I would go to the Dollar Theater together, and Susan would sit between Roger and me because they liked to eat popcorn during the movie. Roger sang in our wedding. It was a song he had written. Roger passed away in June, but I'll never forget he taught me one of the sweetest truths from Galatians 3.3, which asks, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Roger would explain that we live the Christian life the same way we began it, by grace, through faith. We don't come to Christ in the power of the Spirit only to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh. Legalism always claims to raise the bar, but it never, ever does. The moment you add anything to Christ, you are adding something created to the Creator, something temporal to the eternal, something insignificant in comparison with Christ. So what I've described so far is legalism directed towards myself. But legalism can also be directed towards others. The teaching of scripture and tie that to their spirituality. Whether the legalism is directed towards myself or towards someone else, it reflects unbelief. Unbelief that Christ is sufficient for me and unbelief that Christ is sufficient for others. So the first thing that we see in this passage is point A. Paul tells the Colossians to not be intimidated by legalists who are seeking righteousness in religious activities such as dietary rules and Jewish festivals. Verse 16 again. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul is saying, the false teachers are judging you based on what you eat, 
whether or not you attend Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights, whether you make your sacrifice every new moon, whether you prescribe to the rituals of the Sabbath day. What he's talking about are the ceremonies of external religion. Don't let them intimidate you with legalism. Many of those in the church at Colossae were Gentile believers. They had no background in Judaism. And yet, they were told to keep the Jewish law because Christ isn't enough. How often do we act as if Christ isn't enough? Instead of overflowing with thanksgiving and out of gratitude to God, doing good works, doing good things for others, we somehow think that that earns us favor with God. Or we believe that we're more spiritual than others because of those activities. Paul had a number of problems to deal with in the churches that he wrote to. In Corinth and in Rome, he had the problem of meat sacrifice to idols. That's a real problem. If you grew up in paganism, worshiping those idols, there was also the problem of drunkenness. Paul admonished the Corinthians for drunkenness at the Lord's table of all places. But Paul's approach to these problems wasn't to make a bunch of rules about food and drink, but instead he taught us not to injure our temple, God's temple, our bodies, and not to practice things that harm our faith or the faith of our brother. Romans 14, 15, Paul says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, when discussing legalism, it's helpful to talk about both what it is and what it is not. So, I'd like to give you three things that legalism is not. Number one, legalism is not to be confused with obedience. Killing sin in your life is not legalism. Using legalism as an excuse to not obey God is confusing two very different concepts. We obey God because we love him. We treasure him. We delight in obeying him, not to gain a right standing with him. Number two, legalism is not to be confused with spiritual discipline. Giving up your quiet time because you don't want to be a legalist is confusing two very different concepts. We have a quiet, and sometimes when we don't feel that way, we do it anyway and we ask God to restore the joy of our salvation. Number three, restricting my Christian liberty is not legalism. Now, there is someone that can restrict my Christian liberty. You know who that is? It's my weaker brother who is still learning about his liberty in Christ. But I don't restrict my liberty in Christ for false teachers. Restricting my liberty in Christ to look out for my weaker brother is not legalism. It's loving those of the household of faith. Here's the best definition of legalism I could find. John Piper says, Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God, the ground of God being for us and not against us. 
Legalism is rooted in a failure to be amazed that I am saved by grace. A failure to be amazed that I'm accepted by God freely. To be melted, broken, humbled, and filled with joy because of what God has done. Piper goes on to say, The legalist is not broken. He is not stunned. He is not blown away by the fact that he is saved by grace. This brings us to the question, do you live to obey the rules or do you live to love God? Point B, don't be intimidated by legalists seeking righteousness in a shadow. Paul continues in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Galatians 3.24 says, The law was our guardian, or our tutor, some versions say, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. It foreshadows Christ. You don't celebrate the shadow after the substance has come. Late one sunny afternoon when the sun was casting long shadows, I saw Susan coming around the corner of the house. Now, I knew she was coming around the corner of the house even though I couldn't see her because I saw her shadow. After she came into view, I wasn't looking at the shadow anymore. The reality is what created the shadow. The the shadow did not create the reality. The law foreshadows Christ. The law helps us understand that we can never... Come to God by keeping the rules. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like three children at the beach. They're pretending to jump across the ocean, right? One can jump two feet, another three, another four. But even if I can jump ten times, a hundred times further than the next guy, it's insignificant compared with leaping across the ocean. My righteousness falls short of God's glory. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Paul is saying to the Colossians, You have Christ. Why do you keep looking at the shadow when you have the supper? By mystics. Verse 18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The second part of the heresy at Colossae was mysticism. Webster defines mysticism as the belief that knowledge of spiritual truth can be attained by subjective experience. So, mystics are all about the experience. The teachers were saying, if you really want fullness of life, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to experience these things. Asceticism, angels, and visions. Now, as I mentioned, asceticism will be covered more in verses 20 to 23, but let's talk about angels and visions. So, point A, don't be disqualified by mystics. Worshipping angels. We know this heresy involved the worship of angels. Now, 
angels are amazing beings, right? We have examples of where one angel wipes out an entire army. In scripture, many times when a human encounters an angel, the human does a face plant. Revelation 19.10, the apostle John encounters an angel, the apostle John. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Even though angels are awesome and powerful, they are created beings. Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews then goes on to tell us how Christ is superior to angels and angels worship Christ. In his sermon on the glory of God a few weeks back, Pastor John shared how it's not like you have man and then you have angels and then you have God just a little higher than angels. God is infinitely higher than angels, just like he is infinitely higher than man. Part of the heresy at Colossae said that you had to go through these emissaries, these, these rem- emissaries to, to eventually get up to, to this remote, supreme, divine being. And there were all of these emanations of spirits You had to go through the hierarchy to get to the better ones, to eventually get to God. These angels were spiritual emissaries you had to worship. In fact, Christ, like the angels, was one of these emanating spirits. But the gospel says that Christ alone is our intermediary. Some of us here today grew up where there were traditions of venerating saints. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an object of devotion as the queen of heaven. Mary is regarded as the mother of the church. Now, Catholics clarify that Mary isn't worshipped and adored as God is, but she is venerated, and that veneration sets her apart from other mediators. Her intercession can bring, and this is from the catechism, quote, eternal salvation. And she is given titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. So it is appropriate to honor Mary, but not to look to her for salvation. Angels cannot save us. Mary cannot save us. Only Jesus can save us. Speaking of Jesus, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is our high priest and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can pray directly to God. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The New Testament doesn't even contain a whisper that we should pray to Mary as a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James Harrison, professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, writes, We think of the theme of Colossians. Christ is all-sufficient. And his sufficiency is denied if angels or Mary or anyone else supplements his work and person. Christ is all, and thus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. God's fullness is in Christ, and we are filled in him and in no one else. All our sins are forgiven through the cross of Christ. And so we don't need any other mediator. Christ is our life and he alone. So Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you from the prize of Christ, leading you into the worship of angels. Point B, don't be disqualified by mystics, puffed up by visions. Another part of the heresy at Colossae involved being puffed up by visions. And it be useful at this point to talk about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the knowledge that people can obtain about God by observing themselves and the world around them. Psalm 19.1, for example, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So creation contains God's handiwork And it gives evidence to the existence of God. This is general revelation. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says man is without excuse because of general revelation. Verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Even unbelievers who have no written record of God's law still have in their consciences some understanding of God's moral demands. Wayne Grudem says, the knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law which come through creation to all humanity is often called general revelation because it comes to all people generally scripture on the other hand is special revelation special revelation is necessary for salvation grudem says scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel through general revelation they may know that god exists that he is their creator that they owe him obedience that they have sinned against him But how the holiness and justice of God can ever be reconciled with his willingness to forgive sins is a mystery that has never been solved apart from the Bible. Nor does the Bible give us any hope that it can ever be discovered apart from the specific revelation from God. I met a missionary with New Tribes Missions, now called Ethnos 360. He and I attended Sunday school class Uh, together when uh, Susan and I were living in Wichita, Kansas. 
He would often say, we know nothing about the spiritual realm apart from Scripture. So to Scripture, we must go. That always stuck with me. We know nothing about the spiritual realm apart from Scripture. So to Scripture, we must go. If you want to know about the, human na- the, the supernatural, you don't go to a human source. The Reformation principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone, has to do with the sufficiency of scripture as our supreme authority on all spiritual matters. Grudem explains, the sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. At Colossae, a false teacher was going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. In college, I had a number of friends who went on in detail about their visions and words from the Lord. They were sometimes quite puffed up over their spirituality. My friend Paul had a disagreement with someone over a point of doctrine And he told me about one day, and he said, God told me to tell them they were stupid. With this particular group, visions and words from the Lord were held to be on par with Scripture. Their prophetic utterance was viewed as divine revelation. So hear me please. I am not saying that God cannot use dreams and visions today. In fact, There's evidence of many Muslims coming to Christ because they had a dream or a vision which which set them on a journey to, to seek out a Christian to tell them about Christ. But God does not need to give us private revelation to help us in our walk with him because his word is sufficient. It teaches us every good work. Visions and words from the Lord are not on par with scripture. They must be tested by scripture going on in detail about visions can have the unfortunate effect of pointing christians away from scripture which is trustworthy and teaching them to seek truth through subjective means instead of god's eternal inspired word so unfortunately my college friends did a lot of name dropping and using the lord's name um, but claiming to have heard from the Lord is not something to be flippant about. In the Old Testament, false prophets were put to death. Deuteronomy 18:20 to 22 says, "But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." And if you say in your heart, "How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken?" When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. The prophets had one chance and had to get it 100% right. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Scripture is reliable. It is the source of authority for everlasting truth. 
Paul specifically mentions puffed up without reason. Mysticism emphasizes experience over reason. John MacArthur says, Mysticism is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and natural senses. It looks for truth internally. Now, Hollywood tells me that I just need to follow my heart. If that means choosing a vacation that I have an interest in, I can go along with that. If it means that I have a sense of God's moral law, I could go that far. But we live in a fallen world. And even as believers, and we're being sanctified, but that is still work in process. And I know my heart and following my heart is a sure path to hell. Jeremiah is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mystics seek self-enlightenment through religious experience, whether that experience makes sense or not, whether that experience lines up with God's word or not. Paul also mentions sensuous mind. The word sensuous means fleshly. It's the same Greek word that is translated as flesh in Romans 8.6, which says, For the To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So our authority on spiritual matters does not come from visions. It comes from the word of God. Everything that we hear in life, in culture, and certainly college friends who claim to speak on behalf of God must be run through the grid of scripture. Scripture is the litmus test to see if it is true. Everything else is mere mortals speaking. Scripture is unique. Scripture is not being added to. The canon of Scripture is closed. God's word, consisting of the Old Testament and the New Testament, came together over a period of 1,500 years. More than 40 individuals wrote God's word in perfect harmony. As the Apostle John penned the final words of the last book of the New Testament, he recorded this warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Scripture is not being added to, and we don't ignore the parts that are convicting to us. Having God's word is an amazing gift. Amazing doesn't begin to describe it, right? Human words fail. The God of the universe has spoken to us. As we read earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does scripture not equip us for? Nothing. Scripture is sufficient for every good work. Do not feel incomplete insufficient, unequipped to live the Christian life if you don't have visions. 
if you do have visions, these visions are not what equips you for the Christian life. It's God's complete eternal word. So Paul gives us the negatives first. Don't be intimidated by legalists. They're seeking righteousness and keeping the rules. But the law is a shadow of the reality, which is Christ. And don't be disqualified by mystics. Worshiping angels puffed up because Christ is only one of a long line of intermediaries. Claiming the source of life and purity and growth is in certain religious experiences. Now Paul gives us the positive, what we are to do instead. Point three, hold fast to Christ. We avoid syncretism, the mixing of different religions and philosophies with Christianity by holding fast to Christ. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The New Testament contains a number of images for the church. The church is the bride of Christ in Revelation 19. It's a spiritual house in 1 Peter 2.5. It's a temple in 1 Corinthians 3.16. It's a letter from Christ in 2 Corinthians 3.3. It's a household of faith, Galatians 6.10. 1 Peter 4.17 calls it the household of God. But perhaps the most used model is the one that we find right here in this text. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. So when Paul says, hold fast to the head, he's saying, hold firmly to Christ. Don't let go. We're to be steadfast in our faith. We're to hold on to the gospel. Hold on to our confession of faith. But God has provided for us to help us in this in so many ways. Here are just five of those. First, God helps us hold firmly to Christ by holding firmly to us. In John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Second, God helps us hold firmly to Christ by blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3. God the Father chose us, God the Son redeems us, and God the Holy Spirit seals us, living inside us, empowering us is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance. Third, God helps us hold firmly to Christ through his eternal word. We lack nothing to live the Christian life. Fourth, God has also given us precious promises. He tells us that we will be sanctified. We will become like Christ. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The fifth way God helps us hold firmly to Christ is found in our text today. In verse 19, God helps us hold firmly to Christ by giving us the church. He gives us each other. We're nourished by the head by being connected to the rest of the body. We receive nourishment by Christ through the body of Christ. It is with the church that I'm under the teaching of the word. I love the verse-by-verse exposition of scripture in this church. We take the word of God seriously. 
It shows up in the corporate maturity of the believers here. We're serious about doctrine, which just means belief system about God. Teaching doctrine does not make people hard. It makes them soft. It makes them mature in Christ. It makes them loving. Don't let your culture tell you otherwise. There are other ways I'm nourished by Christ through the body of Christ. Through the church, I have brothers who hold me accountable, who encourage me, who speak into my life. Philippians 4.27 says that it is with the church that I am standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is with the baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's with the church that I worship and pray with other believers where they spur me on to love and good deeds. It's with the church that I contribute financially to the work of Christ, both locally and around the world. It's with the church that I love my brothers and sisters in a way that the world may know Jesus. And it's with the church that I participate in ministry, exercising whatever gifts God has given me. I am nourished by Christ through the body of Christ. The way a believer holds firmly to Christ is through the church. The text goes on to say, the whole body is not only nourished, but most identical language in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. And if you would turn with me there, keep your place in Colossians and turn with me to Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, when is the body joined and held together? According to this passage, when each part is working properly. When each of us, using our different giftings appropriately within the body of Christ, the, the body grows in unity. When the saints, gifted by Christ himself, are, do the work of ministry, we build up one another. Each of us have different giftings. Think of your gifting as a painting, right? Some of us have... A lot of yellow, others a lot of green or red or blue. But in the same way, we're all, we all have different um, giftings in evangelism or teaching or helps or administration. We each have a unique blend of colors. The important thing isn't so much finding the right label, but using your gift to build up the body of Christ. If your gift includes evangelism, help equip the rest of the body by showing us how to evangelize. Take other believers with you and show us how to do it. Encourage others when you see them taking baby steps in the right direction. When each part of the body is working properly, the body is joined and held together in unity. If you sense a lack of unity at Remedy, Ask yourself if it is because you are not using your gift given by Christ himself for the building up of his body. How do we hold fast to Christ? By being nourished by Christ through the body of Christ. 
by using our gift to build up his body, by being knit together not only to each other, but to the head. What's the outcome of this? What happens when we hold fast to Christ? Number four, we grow with divine growth. Keep your place in Ephesians 4. Let's flip back to Colossians 2, verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. How do we avoid the danger of syncretism? The mixing of different religions and philosophies with Christianity. Paul says don't be intimidated by legalists. Don't be disqualified by mystics. Hold fast to Christ and grow with divine growth. We are nourished by Christ and through the church and we're united to the head and the rest of the body through through we're united to the head through the rest of the body and as a result we grow with a growth that is from God we go from being mere babes in Christ to being mature from knowing little about his word to understanding and being discerning about his word, to becoming spiritually perceptive. We become more like Christ. We begin to have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we begin, as we mature, to have spiritual discernment and understand things that we used to believe because our culture asserted that they were true. And we begin to question those things. Wait a minute, this doesn't line up with the word of God. We begin to examine our beliefs. We realize how much of our thoughts are held captive by our culture instead of by the word of God. Now let's flip back um, to Ephesians 4 for a minute. I want us to back up and read the context of what we just read a minute ago in Ephesians 4. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The context of what we just read about the body of Christ growing and being built up in love is doctrinal truth. God gave the church apostles, prophets, Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, each were given to equip the rest of the church for ministry. So what's the aim of these equippers? It's to equip the church for ministry by building a unified body and knowledge of truth, a unified grasp of truth, so that we'll no longer be children, no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now remember my popcorn-eating buddy, Roger Hill, the, the one that taught me that living the Christian life uh, is done the same way we come to Christ by grace through faith. Roger used to say, 
doctrine is important. We'd talk about some truth of scripture and he would say doctrine is important. Or we talk about how culture wasn't lining up with doctrine and he would say doctrine is important. The more I grow in Christ, the more I understand the wisdom of his words. Church, we need to be growing in our maturity. We need to be growing in our discernment of truth and error. We need to be growing with a growth that is from God. How do we avoid the danger of syncretism? Paul tells us. Don't be intimidated by legalists. Don't be disqualified by mystics. Hold fast to Christ and grow with the growth that is from God. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider the truth of your word and receptive and consider how we may have uh, let our culture sway us, um, influence our beliefs instead of your holy eternal word. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as we examine ourselves, that you would help us to grow with the growth that is from you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.